Tonight on Farage, I've been to Nottinghamshire to the old coal fields to see whether Boris Johnson's comment about Margaret Thatcher closing the pits down being good for climate change has done him damage with the voters there. We look at the A-level results. Gosh, aren't our young people clever now? And I'm being joined for Talking Pints by a great hero, Simon Weston, CBE. So today was A-level results day, and yes, of course, it's been an incredibly disrupted year and a half in education with young people spending vast amounts of time simply not at school, and we haven't been through the usual exam sitting procedure, so much of what's been marked has been done on continuous assessment. But just think about this. Have a look at these figures. Have a look at these figures and ask yourself whether this makes sense. So in 2019... 25% of young men and women aged 18 who took their A-levels, 25% got A's or A-stars. Now look at that graph. Today, nearly 45% of our 18-year-olds got A's or A-stars. It's virtually doubled since just before the pandemic. You can also see with that graph a gap between the attainment of boys and girls. And it would seem that boys in some ways do better sitting fixed examinations under that stress and girls, perhaps they're more diligent at school and do better with continuous assessment. But for it to have gone from 25% to 45% in the space of just two years, frankly, something is wrong. It must be ridiculous. And yet Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, says that students deserve to be rewarded after a year of disruption. So prizes for everybody from Gavin Williamson. And he says this year's grades have been awarded and they should not undermine or question the value of students' results. Well, the question I'm asking you tonight is, as they pass everything, Are we actually failing our young people? And I think we are, because I feel sorry for those who genuinely would have achieved A grades in much more trying and testing circumstances. Okay, the A star is there, I know, but many who would have excelled, and the gap between them and their peers would have been great. For them, this has simply disappeared. It also plays in to the idea that 50% of young people should go to university. And in many cases, in many cases, university is right. Of course it is. For those that are academically inclined, for those who want to go on to medical professions or whatever else it may be, of course university is right. But with lots of A's and A stars, I'm sorry, there'll be many going to university who will rack up debt over the course of the next three years and find themselves with no advantage in the workplace whatsoever. So I think we're failing them in that regard. And I also think it plays into this narrative in this country where we seem to think that passing academic exams is wonderful, but learning or being encouraged to learn trades and skills is a bad idea. And very often those that go into trades and skills actually do better, make more money, have more independence, uh, often as self-employed people, than those that finish up working for the big corporate companies. So I think we're failing our young people. I want to know what you think. And you can do that, of course, by getting in touch with me 
gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in your barrage, the Farage questions, which I see and read out sight unseen at the end of the show. Well, joining me to try and help us through this, to see whether, see whether I'm right or not, I guess, is Tom Richmond, director of the EDSK Think Tank and former government advisor. Tom, I know you've, you've taught A-levels, you've advised government, you've worked for think tanks. I mean, this has been your life for many, many years. I mean, this rise, surely this rise from 25% to 45% for A's and A-stars, surely, Tom, that is ridiculous. And I think, Nigel, that goes back to the very purpose of any grading system, not just for A-levels, but for university degrees and even GCSEs. The purpose of those grades is to differentiate between those who can understand more, who know more, who can do more, compared to those who can maybe understand a bit less and know a bit less. But unfortunately, the grading system doesn't do that. If you get so many people getting the top grades that it becomes impossible to distinguish between them, then the grading system itself has ultimately become meaningless. And I think that's going to be a problem for employers in future, looking at this students who got their grades yeah. today. I think yeah. it's going to be a problem for universities, potentially. How do they know if students at two different schools who both got an A in, say, A-level physics, how do they know which of those candidates really does know more and can understand more? And I think that's going to be a problem. Well, I absolutely agree with that. Now, for GCSE, of course, we've got a new system coming in, haven't we, where we grade for, is, is it from one to nine? Uh, yes, yeah, so that system's been in place for a little while. We're going to see on okay. Thursday what the results are for this yeah. year. But again, there are some concerns that because there were no exams, that the government said to schools and colleges, effectively, you need to figure out how to give your grades to your students. It's possible on Thursday we will see something very similar again because there were some very minimal checks and balances in place. And so that's why it's possible that grade inflation will kick in for both GCSEs and A-levels yet again this year. Of course, after the grade inflation we saw last year. So it's going to be tough for employers to judge this year's set of A-level results, tough for the universities to judge them too. Are we failing our young people with this system and why, in your opinion? And I know that you advised Nicky Morgan and you advised Michael Gove in the past. Why is Gavin Williamson defending these results? Surely we're letting people down. Well, I think, as you might remember from last summer, and I'm sure your viewers do too, there was a real problem with the way the government tried to hand out grades. The so-called mutant algorithm, uh, I'm sure you might fondly remember, it caused yeah. huge political problems. And so in January this year, when they were looking at what was going to happen in the summer, my view, indeed many other people's views, is that we could still find a way to make the exams go ahead if the government wanted to, but they simply pulled the plug and left it up to schools and colleges instead. That is in no way a criticism of the teachers. They were put in, frankly, an impossible yeah, position to try and figure out, like you say after all the closures where are my students right now and what are they going to potentially achieve in exams that don't even exist so this was ultimately a political solution to an educational problem and i think that's largely why we've ended up where we are so you're really saying to me that gavin williamson is not fit for purpose aren't you it's not for me to say whether politicians are fit for purpose. I'm, well, I'm here to look the policy out. I'm here to look after the learners and the students. And of course, we did see, to be fair, with the high grades, unsurprisingly, a very, lot of very happy students then, a lot of very happy parents. And let us remember that students and teachers have been through a terrible, terrible time over yes. the past 18 months. So for them to even get to the end of the course, I would say well done to them. But clearly, if we need a grading system that works. And more importantly, the consequences of this year's grade inflation will be felt next year when and we are all hoping we get back to exams, of course. We don't know now how you can reverse the grade inflation well, you were describing when people come back to exams next year. Well, that was my question, Tom. What do we do? Uh, OK, let's just say that this was a freak year for all the reasons that we've been through. We've got this 
set of results, they're an aberration. How do we next year get back to a system that allows that very differentiation that you were talking about between the really excellent student and the good student? Well, first and foremost, we need to get students sitting exams again in the way that they are supposed to. But when it comes to the grading of those exams, we have to bear in mind that the students who are finishing their A-levels next year will, of course, have started them during this academic year when we still had school closures. So I think it would be harsh to simply just try and flick a switch and pretend that we just didn't have any of these school closures for next summer. But at the same time, we do need to recognise that if almost half of students are getting A's and A-stars and the grading system isn't serving its purpose for employers yeah. or universities, then we simply can't go down that road Again. So I'd like to see exams back as soon as we can for A-levels, but I think we're going to need to have some compensation in the grading system for at least another year. Right. Understood. You've made it very, very clear. Tom Richmond, thank you for joining us and giving your expertise on this. Well, also joining me tonight is Christine Cuniff, principal of the LVS Ascot School, an independent school. Uh, welcome, Christine, to GB News. Uh, was it a day of great celebration for your pupils today? Yes, it was. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't be with them. I'm actually self-isolating at the moment. But um, I could hear the cheers from the window here. And, and we had some good results and, and they've worked tremendously hard. Now, the independent schools um, are obviously in a slightly different category, um, much smaller class sizes, etc. Uh, and I'm told that about 70% of independent school pupils are getting A's and A stars, uh, which sounds wonderful. But the point, Christine, and I've just been through this with Tom, if so many people get A's and A stars, how does an employer, how does a university differentiate between good pupils and the really exceptional ones? I think what we've got to not forget is this was an extraordinary year. Last year was yeah. extraordinary too. We had the algorithm, we know about that. That's gone, thank heavens, it wasn't here this, this year as well. But it was extraordinary again. And, it, you know, and it's not ideal by any chance. And also it wasn't a snapshot of an exam that the children had this time. And we all know, we've all sat exams, A-level exams, you've come out and you're thinking, oh, I've really blown that, I didn't do very well. Whereas yeah, children did. had a lot longer period of time to be assessed and, 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 and get those grades and learning under different circumstances as well. And as you say, girls did extremely well because yes, and historically yep. girls do work consistently. And boys, I have too. Are a totally different kettle of fish and you know and I had a son take A-levels last year and undoubtedly missed out because I know he would have picked it up in those last couple of months but they didn't have the time even last year to do this whereas at least this year we've had the time to do it as best as we could and I think you're damned if you do and damned if you don't I don't think it's a political issue I don't think any political party would have done it any differently um but let's forget but Christine Christine, come on, you know, I accept all of your points about this being a very exceptional and very difficult year. And I also understand yeah. some of that will roll over until next year. You know, that point was made with a previous guest. I understand it. But come on, in the cold light of day, in the space of two years, we have nearly doubled the number of A and A star grades. That is ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it, it may be ridiculous, but that's because we've had two extraordinary years. I mean, what, it was bound to happen. So are we that you much know, cleverer? Are our students that much cleverer now than they were two years ago? I'm not saying they're not that clever. I'm saying if you go back two years ago, there were still real serious issues with the exams then. And I think the whole thing needs to be looked at. But you can't say our children are getting clever and, you know, dumbing down I was the joking. of these children. 
I, I, I was being a bit sarcastic when I said that. I mean, it, it, it represents the most extraordinary increase. Look, can, can I just ask you? Can, can I just ask you, Christine? I'm going to butt in because these children, right, they've been disadvantaged two years of absolute chaos. Yeah. Right. They, it's not ideal. It doesn't differentiate. But what else? What, what other outcomes could you see? What would you have done yourself that would have been any different? Well, Gavin Williamson, Gavin Williamson says they should be rewarded for the difficult time they've been through at school. So give everybody gold medals, say that everyone's a winner. And isn't that wonderful? But life isn't really like that, is it? And what all I right. want to know, what I want to know, all right, even if I accept that this has all happened because of exceptional circumstances. What I want to know is, and you know, there you are in the education system, what ideas need to go to government so that we can get back to a system that does differentiate between the really exceptional and the not so? Well, I think what Tom said, let's get back to the exams as soon as possible. But I do think the exam system needs an overhaul. And I do think there's merit in universities holding their own exams as well to differentiate with those children. And I do believe there's a huge merit in apprenticeships, degree-based apprenticeships. There's some fabulous opportunities out there. Yep. And they shouldn't be sniffed at. I think the whole thing, this is like, this is a perfect storm. Let's get in there and change it. And I think there's not a teacher in the country that doesn't want to do something about this now. Okay, Christine Carniff, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, you've heard two educators there, um, and they, uh, and, and indeed the Education Secretary, are telling us how exceptional these years have been. It's not perfect, I'm being told. Frankly, I think it's farcical. You just cannot have great inflation on that level, it seems to me. But please let me know what your views are. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, my What the Farage moment. This is incredible. So the government, who I often criticise for being too soft, are on the verge of deporting 50 criminals. They're going to fly them from this country to Jamaica, because Jamaica is the country in which they were born, and they have Jamaican passports. Among the number of 50, yes, there are one or two who left Jamaica when they were very young. But it's very important to remember that among that number, you know, is a murderer, um, a paedophile, and some very, very serious criminals. So I find it almost difficult to believe that my favourite politician, Diane Abbott, is raging against Pretty Patel and demanding that the flights are stopped. And, and I think she sort of missed the point. Her colleague, her Labour colleague, Claudia Webb, added, this is cruel racist and disproportionate punishment that is not designed to make Britain safer, but instead designed to stoke the flames of racial hatred and division. I don't know what these Labour MPs are on, but surely it's right for a country to deport those on foreign passports that have committed serious offences while they're in this country. And for some reason, Labour wants to keep serious criminals in the United Kingdom. Well, put that in the next election manifesto and very, very good luck to you, because I think I know what will happen. And the other What the Farage moment is Extinction Rebellion. Anybody that was in London a couple of years ago will remember Extinction Rebellion. Well, the bad news is they're coming back. They're coming back to London on the 23rd of August. There are eight sites that they intend to occupy. This is going to be a protest, they say, without end. Um, and the good news is, if you're thinking about joining them, Extinction Rebellion are now hosting 
online training courses for people planning to join the process. So if you're planning to break the law, if you're planning not just to protest, but to block the highway to prevent people going about their lives and going about their business for an indeterminate period. If you want to break the law like that, well, that seems to be absolutely fine uh, because you can go online and do a course and it would appear that nobody's going to stop you. Claire Farrell, a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, said, we are in the midst of a collective act of global and social evil, which is unprecedented in all of history. The time to work together is now. Now, mass movements can create rapid change and we are in open rebellion until we see real action. Well, I think you may find, Claire Farrell, that actually uh, stopping people going about their lives, stopping people earning their living, uh, far from getting people to support your cause on global warming, on climate change, on CO2 emissions, I think you'll find it actually puts people off and sends them rather the other way and against you. This morning, I went up to Nottinghamshire. I went to a former mining area, somewhere where the pits were still open 30 years ago. They then closed in the early and middle 1990s to see, did Boris's comments that Mrs Thatcher closing the pits was good because it reduced our CO2 emissions? I go to Nottinghamshire to find out how the voters have accepted that. Back in a moment. So, A-level grades have reached extraordinary levels. 45% of those that sat A-levels this year got A's or A-stars compared to 25% in 2019. I thought that was somewhat ridiculous. I've been asking for your reactions. Sarah on Twitter says, the dropout rate at unis this year is going to be high and the amount of firsts achieved will be low because they are filled with students who would not have got in under ordinary circumstances. Sadly, Sarah, I have to say, I think that that is probably right. Noah on email says, as a young person myself, I believe the results process is ludicrous. It takes the credit away from those who are achieving top levels and leaves others out of their depth. Yep, I have to say, I agree with that as well. And Trevor on email says, we are just storing up a problem that will only become hugely apparent in three or four years' time when the jobs market will be flooded with poorly educated workers. Well... We'll see. Now, today I travelled up to Nottinghamshire to the Ashfield constituency. Many of the pits in that area were closed by the Conservatives in the 1990s and it was very damaging for those communities. Strangely, politically, after 2010, something started happening in those old coal mining areas of South Wales, of the East Midlands, of the North of England. People started voting UKIP in very, very large numbers. They started leaving the Labour Party. Sure, there were some Tories among them, but it was Brexit that motivated this sea change in politics and, and did the Labour Party such enormous harm. In 2019, there were three Labour seats, seats that have been Labour for decades that were won by the Conservatives, including Ashfield. Well, last week, despite holding all these seats and having a majority because he won some of these seats, Boris Johnson made an off-the-cuff remark, a joke, perhaps, uh, as he was busy setting a deadline for fossil fuel extraction. He said, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, who closed so many coal mines across the country, we had a big early start and we're now moving rapidly away from coal altogether. Well, yes, we're moving away from coal. The world isn't because consumption is actually increasing. So I went today 
to Ashfield to ask the people, did they think it was just a joke, just Boris being Boris, or were they genuinely offended? And did it make them think, gosh, why do we vote Conservative? We never liked them very much at all. I also asked the question that, you know, could Labour, could Sir Keir Starmer reconnect with people in these constituencies. So earlier on today, I found myself in the Benting Miners' Welfare, joined by a dozen or so former miners. It's the last welfare in the area. But I was also there with the Conservative Member of Parliament for Ashfield, Lee Anderson. And it was Lee that I spoke to first. Lee, you got elected as a Conservative in this seat and a former miner. I mean, how did it feel? Well, imagine that now, it's an incredible journey. I think I made the same journey, actually, as most of my voters in Ashfield. You know, you go back to 2015, the Brexit vote, massive vote in Ashfield, yeah. 10 or 11,000, same in Sherwood constituency. People were looking for an alternative, they were trying to send a message, a clear message out to government at the time, and that message was, we've had enough, we want change. Yeah, I mean, all those years of parliamentary fight. Yeah, You know, the Brexit always. thing. So, get Brexit done was a great message, no question about mm. that. But Boris himself, you see, I mean... If you think about the last few Labour leaders, I mean, they've not exactly been the most amusing characters. They could barely raise a smile, most of them. Um, and, and, and somehow, the sort of jovial, slightly chaotic cheeriness of Boris was in some ways appealing, I think. People like characters. Yeah. Uh, and like you say, the two previous Labour leaders, lack of charisma. Uh, well, the, the current Labour leader's got a... You know. We're going to come to him a bit later. Okay, so, and people, <laughs> you know, people, especially in areas like this, a working class area, like characters, they like colourful characters, they like somebody who makes the odd mistake, makes the odd, you know, gaffe, uh, but, you know, actually speaks their mind most of the time, and they have to have that connection. Do they pass the pint test? Can they have a pint with that, with that leader in a pub? Could, you know, could um, uh, Ed Miliband come in here? Another part with these lot here. No, absolutely not. No, no. Could Ed, Boris? No, no. Could Boris? Yes, of course he could. Do you think he could? I'm not. I mean, maybe he can. As I say, I, I can see that you know somebody that brings a bit of sunshine is is attractive yeah. compared to yeah. misery. But let me ask you, Lee. You know, the comments that he made, and they said two things to me really. One that he's totally obsessed with climate change, totally obsessed with reducing carbon dioxide which means some pretty big household bills for everyone to pay yeah, at some point yeah, in yeah, time. Yeah. It showed that, but it also showed... I, I don't think he really understands the former mining communities. Does he really understand the hurt that these communities felt, not just in the mid-80s, but in, in the 90s as well? It's a fair point, Nigel. I look around this table, there's quite a few ex-colliers here, myself yeah. included. I have to realise, when I first started the pit in the 80s, I worked with my dad down the pit. And my dad before me worked with my granddad down the pit, my granddad worked with his dad down the pit, and that went back over 150 years. So enshrined, if you like, in this constituency, we've got that deep-rooted, yep. that, that mining culture where if you're not from this area, you don't really understand about working down the pit, about how difficult it is, about that underground community you've got, because there is an underground community, and above ground there's that, uh, there's that village community, if you like, that pit village community, and that was sort of taken away from us overnight. Now. As ex-miners here, we've got quite a good sense of humour. Now, if we'd have told that joke to each other, we could have got away with that, because that's the sort of <laughs> humour we've got. But when, when somebody who's not directly involved or was involved at the time tells a joke like that and make, makes a flippant comment, then it's not so funny, and it, and, it, and it can be hurtful to a lot of us. How much damage it's done, I'm not sure, but it, it's, it's sort of... 
it clouds, if you like, the good work that Boris has done for me since I've been elected, because I've knocked on his door no end of times uh, while I've been the MP with my shopping list, and he's given me 70 million quid so for the town centre. It was a mistake. Genuine mistake, yeah. I think it's a mistake. He shouldn't have said it. I wouldn't have said it. Uh, and I hope the people around here will forgive him. Well, we're going to find out. Yeah. Martin Daubney. Martin, local boy, uh, went on to found, loaded the lads mag, became an MEP. You're now deputy leader of Reclaim. Your dad was a minor. Was it a throwaway joke or does it actually wound a bit? I do think people have a big capacity to forgive Boris, you know, for, for his gaffes. Because, you know, he makes mistakes. You know, Lee makes mistakes. I make mistakes. We, you know, Human politicians do make mistakes. However, um, on the campaign trail in the general election, Lee, you know this better than I do, so many former miners were saying to us, I'm going to vote Tory for the first time. Now, they, they've been through that during the same journey same we've been on. Yeah. Former Labour, then UKIP, yeah. Brexit, yeah. and now Tory, because they just can't vote for Labour. And so I think that while the, the gaffe was, was profound, I think it was, was hurtful and, and, and numbskulled, I still think he'll get away with it because Keir Stormer is so useless. Okay, no, it's a fair point. Um, I mean, who here, who here thought the, that the comment really was insulting and, 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 and wounding? I do. I lost my father in mines. I lost two of my uncles in mines. And I think it was totally inappropriate to come out with it. We just starting to heal wounds and to reopen them wounds again, especially to bring Margaret Thatcher into it. Don't like it at all. And that, those two words, Margaret Thatcher, yes. that, that's, you still feel very strongly about that. Can I just suggest one thing? Yeah. We invite Morris up here, and we take him to Manfield to Mines Rescue Station, take him there, which about this high, let him crawl through, then he might appreciate what the miners did for this country. We'll, the miners, I don't know if you know, we lost over 30,000 men in the industry. Wow. That's a lot. Does he have time to make up for it? Well, I hope he's got time to make up for it, because I think he's done a good job over, the, over this COVID, and we voted him in, we've got to get benefit of that. But same way as we voted him in two years ago, we can vote him out just say, been Labour all my life, Yeah. and I wanted Brexit. Yeah. And when the Labour Party turned and scoffed at me, I said, right, I've done with you, I'll never vote Labour again. Well, they've got a new leader, Sir Keir Starmer. I mean, maybe he's going to reconnect in Can't the mining areas. Can't stand the man. What? What? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? He's false. Is he? Yeah. I don't trust a word that comes out of his mouth. So was it just a flippant remark? Yes. It was. I'm sure it was, because that's Boris. <laughs> I am more worried about Carrie. Right. And is, and is that because of the... Is that because of this whole global warming, yes. climate change That's again. That's all we're, all we're but, hearing but, about. But you don't mind £10,000 for a new boiler in your house, do you? If, if, if it's going to save the planet. I mean, what, could don't afford be so it. selfish. I could like, afford it. We live in a bungalow, so it would be easy. But what about all these people who live in flats and uh, have got that type of... Well, ordinary working people haven't got that type of money. For no. Stop. And where is the common sense of this government to not realise that we can't afford it, ordinary people cannot afford it. Now, I think the point you raise is an important one because I, I you know, Boris's comments were made, Lee, weren't they, within the context of what for him has now become, I think, his religion, which is reducing CO2. Um, yeah. He also made the comment, we're moving away from coal. He was very proud of the fact that as a country we're moving away from coal. 
But the truth is, the world is not moving away from coal. Coal consumption is higher now than it was 10 years ago. The Germans, you, you drive through Germany, it's big coal-fired yeah. power stations everywhere. The Chinese, I think, are going to build nearly 100 new coal-fired power stations. What is this obsession? Is it carry? Well, I'm not sure if it's carry or not, Nigel, but... Someone at the end of the table what, thinks it is. Well, <laughs> I think what we have to realise is, if we close a coal mine in this country, and we've closed them all, if we close the steelworks in this country, which we've closed a hell of a lot over the past 30, 40 years, we're still going to need steel, we're still going to need coal, so a coal mine opens up in China, in Russia, wherever, in, in much less safer conditions, they're then shipping that coal in big tankers over to this country oh, yeah. to make this high quality steel. And the perfect example for me is, is the, there's a coal mine in Cumbria. You've got a coal mine there that's producing metallurgical coal. It's not thermal coal, it's, no, it's top coal. And steel needs They go straight to Port Talbot yeah. and the steelworks yeah. yeah. to, to, make, to make wind farms. To make yeah. wind yeah. <laughs> that's the ironic <laughs> thing. Let's get it out of the ground and let's use it in this country. Yeah. The reason the mine industry was closed in the 80s has nothing to do with green issues. It was the price of coal on the world market, so you could get it cheaper. Yeah, but the same thing happened in the 90s, didn't it? It did. Because, you know, okay, there were the big pit closures of the 80s, but in areas like this, a lot of those pits kept going into the 90s and were very, very productive, did a hell of a good job. And then I think you'll find it was the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was countries like Poland selling because they needed foreign currency. I, to me, that was the real betrayal. I think the real betrayal was in the 90s. I think what was happening in the 80s, there was a heck of a battle, wasn't there, between yeah. Scargill and Thatcher. There was a lot of collateral damage, a lot of division, I guess, in these communities. I felt what happened in the 90s was even worse in some ways. How do you feel, sir, about it? I worked, uh, I started here at Benton Colliery, 1976, until I retired. I retired early in 2009. Did nearly 34 years underground. And... The 90s was nothing like the devastation of the 80s. What Margaret Thatcher... I don't, I don't dislike many people, but Margaret Thatcher just lies deep yeah. on me, yeah. what she did to these miners and these communities in this area. Uh, there was also a division within the communities, wasn't there? Absolutely. Is that division still there today? Absolutely. Um, my dad worked at the same colliery as me, mm -hmm. I was striking minor, went picketing, stopped speaking to me. I've got, I've got friends who, even to this day, real good friends who stopped speaking to me because, because I decided to be a striking minor and not go to work. Yeah. But, all the, but everybody used to see it on the news that all Nottinghamshire went yeah. back to work. Yeah. That wasn't how he tripped. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Because we kept working because Thatcher had kept the power stations stocked up for two years. So if you went on strike, it was a waste of time because she got coal there anyway. Yeah. No, 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 no. These I, I, you know, I, no, no. These, these, these divisions are very deep, and I understand it. And, 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 and perhaps, I'm not sure many in London would understand this debate, but, but it's important they see it and they understand it because it is, it is very, very real. So has Boris made a mess of this? It's a Borisism, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does it all the time. Um, I think if, you, if you're going to accept Boris, it, it comes with the territory, I think. I don't think it's helpful. No. Um, but my biggest concern listening to all these arguments is we need to move on. I'm, I'm, I'm very respectful of everybody working down the pits. Yes. It's a very dangerous job, you know, and the country was wholly dependent on coal at the time. But we've got to move on. And I think debating what he said and what he didn't say and whether it was a gaffe and 
it's important, you know, he's a leader of the country, he's, he's got to think about what he says, but we've got bigger issues to deal with. You know, we've got 1% CO in this country, in China, we've just got to continue. Yeah, you may be right, sir. Myself, personally, I'm, I'm sort of my, the industry I work in. I've benefited a lot of the business has from decarbonisation schemes, green technology, green energy. I do get it. We need to go that way. The current climate change report, quite damning. I understand we need to move forward with it. But also, I'm sort of rooted in the history from where my grandfather came from, from where all these chaps came from. We need to remember what these chaps did back in the day. And then pulling them down with comments like that really doesn't help. And I have to conclude by saying thank you, Thanks, Lee. Michael. Thank you, everybody, for coming and taking part in this. And it, it is interesting, you know, to understand that this is a real, real problem in this community, a very difficult history. Uh, Boris has done damage. There's no doubt about that. Even those that think it's just a flippant comment would admit that it wasn't a very clever thing to say. It was a bit of an insult to these communities. But the one thing I'm getting from almost everybody around this table, despite, you know, some of these people being lifelong Labour voters, is at the moment, Keir Starmer is not reconnecting with the old coal fields of England. Uh, and I sort of get the feeling, I get the feeling, as he's done so many times in his career, that Boris will just get away with it. That's my feeling. Well, that was Nottinghamshire this morning. Very passionate people, very nice people. Yes, it's done damage, but not of itself enough to do, in my opinion, very serious damage. It wasn't, as some journalists called it, the Ratner's moment. Now, coming up after the break, I will be talking pints with Falklands veteran Simon Weston, CBE. Well, I'm very pleased to say, joining me today on Talking Pints is Falklands veteran Simon Weston, CBE. Simon, cheers. Cheers. Thank you for coming. And before I forget, happy 60th birthday, which was last Sunday, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it's Sunday, yeah. Um, I feel incredibly privileged to have got that far. You've got every reason to. And I have to say, I read the interview you did with Lord Ashcroft, Michael Ashcroft, in the Mail on Sunday. And... I've read and seen lots of the stuff that you've said and done over these long years, 40 years next year since the Falklands, and we've met a few times over the years as well. And I've never, I've never heard you or seen you speak perhaps quite as graphically, and let's not spend too long on it, but, but you spent a lot of time in that interview talking about Bluff Cove, 8th of June, 82, how frankly awful it was. Um, but you did say that you felt you were the luckiest man alive. And I thought, that's really interesting, because you've been through... I mean, hey, I've had a plane crash, road traffic accident. I've had some time... I mean, I've been smashed about a bit, but nothing compared to the trauma that you were put through. And was it 90 operations that you've mm, had? 90-some plus, yeah. And you spent... I mean, basically, if you add it all up, you spent years in hospital. Yeah, we... Roughly about six years, I think, something yeah. like that, when you add it all up in total. But over a, it's over a sort of 39-year period. Yeah, but it's, still quite, <laughs> it's still quite a lot, Simon, isn't it? You know? It is. But, but I thought, despite everything, despite everything, the fact that you said, I'm the luckiest man alive, means you've come out of, the, you've come out of this experience still with a positive attitude towards life. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, you learn a lot through um, age and... I won't necessarily run down the road of wisdom, but you, you, learn, you learn a lot, and you learn a lot about yourself, and it's the people who come into your life, but I, I've always lived by a, 
a simple philosophy. It's not so much about what happens in your life. It's more about what you do about it, what you're prepared to do about it that yeah. counts. Um, because as you say, you've had nasty knocks, you've yeah. had bumps, yeah. but you still have to go on. You know, you've only got two ways to go. You either die or you get on with it. Yeah. So, and it's what you make of that bad job. And I was told by a, a young paratrooper who was in hospital with me, and I said to him, Grant, I said, how do you cope? I said, he was younger than me, he was only 18, and he'd lost his leg, and there was a potential he might lose his other. And he went, oh, hell, just make the best of a bad job. Hmm. And I, I just took that philosophy to heart, really. Just make the best of a bad Was this on the... Cause that, so there was like a troop ship that... that, that no, it was in, in Woolwich Hospital, with Military in Woolwich, when we were wise enough to still have military hospitals. Oh, I, know. We, I know, I know, I know. They all got closed, didn't they? Which, yeah. which was pretty crazy. So how long was it on the hospital ship going back from the Falklands? I was three and a half weeks on board the, the ship before they decided to send me up to uh, Montevideo in Uruguay. Yeah. So they put me on board a logistic ship. There were four of these um, little things the Hydra Heckler, Herald and the Joker. And they put me on the Hydra, sent me up to Montevideo, put me on the RAF and the plane decided to lose its engine and crash. Um, <laughs> they sent out a replacement. <laughs> you were going through quite a time, weren't you, one well, way or another? You know, I was doing a dinner for the Children's Air Ambulance uh, up near Nottingham somewhere. And I was telling that story. I was trying to think of all sort of flying stories for yeah. the reason of the air ambulance. And I, I was telling that story. And a chap came up to me, very tall, elegant chap, very smartly dressed. And he said, I remember that story. I said, well, thank you for the validation. But why would you remember it? He said, oh, I ought to. I was in charge of the maintenance of that aircraft. <laughs> 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 I wanted to shake him warmly by the throat at that point. But yeah. So, so, so off, off you go. You're 20 years old. Hmm. And from what I can see, you like beer, rugby. Love my rugby, yeah. Yeah, um, so just a normal young lad, and you join up, you join the local regiment, off you go, you get severely wounded, you come back, it takes years and years away from your life. But as I said already, you know, you've obviously, there, there were obviously some dark moments going through it all, there must have been, mm -hmm. but you've come out of it, and, and you've, you know, you've made the best of it in every way that you possibly can. And your life now, Simon, because I, I, was, I was fascinated to see that you did have a go for politics at one point in time. You, 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 I mean, and this is a really extraordinary story, that you put your name forward to be police and crime commissioner. And because of a minor misdeed in your teens, you were disqualified. Well, I wasn't so much disqualified as I was getting hounded by somebody in the press who was trying to make a bigger issue out of it. And I had a younger son who was not coping with life as well as I, I would have hoped, um, mostly because of my public uh, sort of profile. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to protect him more than anything else. And I'll be fair to Theresa May, she was incredibly supportive of the situation. And she said that the law that they were bringing in to surround the Police and Crime Commissioner about having committed a jailable offence um, wasn't intended for things that you did when you were 14. Yeah. Um, and she was really positive. She tried to support me tremendously and tried to convince me to stay on with it. And I thank her very much for that because it, it made me realise that my misdemeanour as a child um, didn't have to reflect on me as an adult and for all the things I'd done. And I was in my 50s at the time. Um, all the things that I'd done, really, I, I, I made amends for what I did wrong. Um, uh, and But that was always going to be there. And I think people were using it for the wrong reasons. It's a rough game politics. 
Yeah, I kind of got a glimpse of that. Yeah, no, um, it is a rough game. And you need to have a thicker skin, and perhaps I, I don't have that thick skin for that type of environment. Um, if you're going to criticise me, criticise me for something I, I do or I say, mm. but don't criticise mm. me for the actions of being a child and making a mistake. No, I mean, I have to say that, 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 that I think that law needs looking at why someone should be disbarred for a misdemeanor age 14 does need looking at uh, yeah, for, lots of, for lots of jobs. And, and the double jeopardy law, because if you've got yeah. two strikes on your history yeah. before you're 18, it doesn't matter, you know, they can still disbar you from certain careers. Yeah. I think we need to look at that because everybody's made mistakes when they're young and most of us can honestly say, well, I was very fortunate I didn't get caught. Mm. And I don't think that we should penalise people for... <laughs> Drinking when you're 14, and maybe you know something else that you've done. Yeah. Shoplifting a bag of sweets. You know, as long as you don't carry on your career of obvious notorious crime. <laughs> you know, uh, for a bag of sweets. As long as you could tail that and you realise you made an error, hmm. then we should be able to sort of offer the olive branch and wait till they're 21, yeah. 25, or whatever, and say, okay, it's wiped clean, and then on crack on, become yeah. a teacher, become a social worker. You're obviously yeah. not turning into being an arch criminal or a charity fundraiser which yeah. you've done a huge amount of i've been very fortunate to be able to do all the things i've done uh, opportunities came my way and i and i was able to grab them and yeah. i'm still enjoying that side of my life and a cbe and a cbe got ob got a it's I, I not bad is it didn't expect any of them um and uh, yeah thrilled and thrilled as much for my mother as anybody else you know uh, because f for parents it really does mean a huge amount more yeah. and i'm thrilled for my mum yeah because we nearly did a charity do together, didn't we? Do you remember that telephone conversation we had? It was the, it was the TV show Celebrity Hunted, wasn't yeah, it? Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, they were talking about pairing us up on it, but it never quite happened. For whatever reason, it didn't happen. It would have been fun. I, I understand that people were interested in doing it, but um, it would have been a laugh. It would have been a huge bit of fun. Um, running around the countryside waiting to... I'm not sure the two of us trying to be disguised and not be recognised would have um, necessarily been very <laughs> successful. I'm, I'm not sure how you'd have hidden me in a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the same, I think. Well, at the time, I certainly was. Yeah. It was... But you've done a lot for charity. So, Simon, you know, you're pretty fit. You know, I can see that. You, you, and you sort of work out in the gym mm -hmm. two or three times a week and you're pretty busy with what you do. So what next? What's, what's the next big chapter for Simon Weston? Um, there, are, there are some opportunities that are going on, um, things that are happening. Um, there's, there's a new product in the agricultural world, and the guy who created it, his statement was that he wants to try and help feed the world. And, and that's something I'm very interested in, mm -hmm. in helping to, to grow, um, if you pardon the pun. Um, but yeah, so that's going on. I've got my own security company, which um, is facilities management. We do security and cleaning, yeah. um, which is great fun, hard work, um, more for my business partner than it is for me. So Paul is constantly <laughs> awake at night. Uh, but yeah, we, we've got that going on. Um, so there's, there's lots of different things that I'm, I'm doing, but I, I, I'd like to continue in the charity world and, and to do more in, in the TV and, and the public side of life. Uh, because I enjoy it. It's it's a lot of fun, and doing this is 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 great. Yeah, fun. you've done it phenomenally well. When you look back at it all, and you know, since the Falklands, we've had Afghanistan. We've just left after twenty years, and you know, the Taliban are back taking provincial cities. It's quite a depressing. I think for the for the veterans of that conflict, it, it must be very tough to watch what's going on. We've had Iraq, 
which I know you were very sceptical. Yeah. Very sceptical. Very critical of the, the reasons we went into Iraq. Um, Mr. Blair and Mr. Bush, they, uh, they knew the judgments they were making were false. You know, they, they knew there was no chemical factories or, or nuclear factories. 45 minutes until, you know, we could all be destroyed. It was, it was never true, and, and the, the pictures and the images they showed was never true. So, you know, and, and people lost their lives because of it, and hundreds of thousands of civilians died yes. when there was no need for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was hugely critical of it. Mm. But when the, the Taliban and, well, like Al-Qaeda started doing what they did, then, yes, there had to be a... a um, a call to arms and people had to do something to try and stop them perpetuating their evil sort of mantra um, but you know the, you always have to have service people because when evil people won't listen to reason yes. there has to be people to stand up and, and take that chance and we get paid the money to do the job not for our opinion so I wasn't really offering an opinion when I went to the fault. <laughs> no, but when you look back at it Simon, you know, I say you're very critical of Iraq and the reasons for it, when you look back at the Falklands and what we did and the reasons we did it for. Do you have doubts in your mind about what you did and what you were part of? Never had any doubts. Never had any doubts. I know some of my friends and some of the, my colleagues from, from my regiment have reservations, um, but we're lucky enough with hindsight to be able to judge things differently. But I, I just look at it that there were nearly 2,000 people that had the right to their own independence, the right to freedom, right to self-determination. Mm. They had the right to democracy and no drunken wife beater from a junta had the right to deny them of that and and that's what we went down to remove them from um whatever the politics are and whatever they were that was nothing to do with me i was a soldier paid to do a job um unfortunately didn't really get to do that job got injured yeah in the process of trying to go and do it uh, but you know and there was a lot of very good men who went and did and a lot of them didn't come back uh, so, you know, I'm full of admiration and pride for all of those guys that I served alongside, even though I didn't know some of them. And there were some incredible people who showed you the way to live afterwards as well. Um, wow. You know, and you see that from Afghanistan, Iraq, still the same spirit, the same people who've been very badly injured, who just carry it on. You know, it's you not are, just, you I have to say, Simon, you are an inspiring role model for people of all ages who go through terrible misfortune, whether it's through car accidents or military wounds or whatever it may be, and, you know, you've come through the most astonishing adversity. Um, gosh, he's going to be a national institution one day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in one. <laughs> well, I've got to say, Simon, thank you very much indeed. That was Simon Weston on Talking Pines. Great stuff. Thanks. Now, when we talk or think about the Great War, or as we now perhaps know it more, World War I, we think, well, that really now is history. There are no living links left to that war. And indeed, the last Tommy uh, that fought on the Western Front, Harry Patch, died back in 2011, aged 111. But an extraordinary story this week uh, that an historian, Richard Van Emden, somebody who's tracked the last survivors of the Great War, or the last people in this country with real living links and memories of the Great War. And, and something extraordinary uh, that he put out this week. And it's about a woman called Gertie K. 
Kingston. And she's just died, aged 112. And there she is, on the right of the picture, with the blonde hair. There's her dad in his uniform, and that's early 1917. They're living in Berkshire, and her father goes off to the Western Front, and the day before he's due to come home on leave, at the end of 2017, he's shot and he's killed. And she was eight in 1917 when her father died. So with her death at 112, it is likely, possible, probable that this is the last person that was alive today in our country that actually remembers the terrible pain and suffering and loss uh, that incurred during that war between 1914 and 1918. Uh, it's possible there's somebody out there aged 101 that had a father killed, but unlikely there was somebody out there with an actual distinct memory of who their father was and what there was uh, when he died in that war. So we pay tribute to one of the last people from that age uh, with a memory of that terrible conflict. Now, it is time, in the last couple of minutes, we've got for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions, and my kind producers absolutely make sure that I'm not allowed to see what the questions are before I read them out on air and perhaps make a complete and utter fool of myself. Matt and Liv on email ask, what were you like as a student? I wasn't a student. I left school at 18, I went straight out to work, um, and I'd have to say, in my last two years at school, I was rebellious, disruptive, awkward, uh, very often said things I didn't mean because I like to upset people and provoke people and I'm very, very pleased I took those attributes with me to the European Parliament where I exhibited and used them for about 20 years. Harrison on email asks me, do you plan on starting a new political party in the future? Oh, what, again? I mean, I've given it 25 years of my life. For the minute, do you know what? For the minute, I'm really, really happy doing this. I've no desire to start a new political party. I think when the history books are written about UKIP and indeed the Brexit party, uh, people will say they were exceptions rather than the rule. There have been scores of attempts since World War II to set up new political parties. They've all failed. And the remarkable thing, you can love them or hate them, but the remarkable thing about UKIP and the Brexit party is we achieved the goal we set out to achieve, despite everyone telling us it was totally impossible. So, in political terms, whilst there's much to do, I'm pretty happy. It took a long time, but I'm pretty happy with what I did. Marcus, on email, asks me, when did you last speak to Donald Trump? How was he? Great, just great. He was fantastic, just in great form. I was with him, I was with him in May. Um, I was with him in May, and I was down at Mar-a-Lago for a few days, and he'd lost a lot of weight. He was playing loads of golf, and, and whilst he still may be smarting a bit from some of the results that we saw in the election last November, you have not heard the last of Donald Trump, believe you me. Right, Janet on email asks me, if you were offered a job in Cabinet, what job would you consider? I'm not going to be offered a job in Cabinet. It isn't going to happen. They're never going to acknowledge me. They owe me far too much, ever, far too much, ever, to admit it. I mean, I was in Nottingham today. 10,000 people voted UKIP in 2015. You know, I'd got many of those people away from the Labour Party. I made them understand that the London Labour Party wasn't the patriotic party that their fathers, grandfathers' generations had voted for and supported. And those voters in the end, because of Brexit, went to Boris. So, hey, 
He's never going to admit that. He can't do it. This is the last one I'm going to do. Would you still regard yourself as a Thatcherite? Well, I did in economic terms in the 1980s when it was relevant. But as I said today, I remember when Michael Heseltine closed down those pits in, Nor- in, 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 in Nottinghamshire and elsewhere, that was a complete, a complete betrayal of people who'd actually broken every production record in the coal mining industry. It was awful. 